0: Butch, thank you for that great introduction. Do you realize this year we're celebrating 25 years of friendship and partnership? And I just can't thank you enough. Maranatha is probably one of the largest supporting churches for world help throughout all the years. And only eternity is going to reveal what you've accomplished for the kingdom especially uh, in Asia, where you've trained all those leaders and church planters. So thank you, and happy anniversary, old man. I, I hope I don't look as old as you. <laughs> he, I, I met him at a restaurant Last night and didn't recognize him, he had on a red shirt, I thought it was Santa Claus. <laughs> we, uh, we love you, Butch, and we love Maranatha. I'm so excited to be here. Of course, I'm a cancer survivor, so I'm excited to be anywhere today. But thank you. Yes, I I remember the days the doctor gave me that dreaded news that I had cancer, I would not survive, go home and put my affairs in order. I was uh, pretty depressed. They said, we need to operate immediately. After the operation, they removed a five-pound tumor from off my heart and lungs and said, if they'd waited another week, it would have been too late. And a year and a half... Radiation and chemotherapy, 18 surgeries, many days near death's door. The doctors told me I was uh, gonna survive, that I was in remission. Aren't you glad doctors are sometimes wrong? I I know I am, And so I'm here today and really happy to be celebrating our anniversary with Maranatha. Last week, I was in Ukraine, and I was so excited. When I got to the border, I saw a 40-foot container filled with 100,000 pounds of food going to Kiev from World Help, and uh, to, to know that we had a network of churches and pastors in that capital city that would have it distributed within a day and be helping thousands, and to know that that wasn't our first container into Ukraine, but it was our 17th container in the last uh, three months. And we are working diligently to keep people alive, mostly women and children, because the men are fighting and dying in an unexplainable war. And all I just want to thank you for your support that allows us to do those kinds of ministries and thank you for the lives that you are saving and keep praying for Ukraine. 80% of the country professes to be Christian and Christians are being persecuted uh, in Ukraine. So please, please pray for our world help team and our world help partners as we continue to minister help and hope to them. During COVID, I decided to write a book about all the Christians that I've met around the world who have been persecuted. And uh, it's entitled, If I Die. I'll explain that title in a moment. Someone came by before the service and saw it and said, what do you mean, if I die? We're all going to die. Well, yes, but uh, this, I'll explain the title in just a minute, it'll make sense. But I am on a book tour, traveling to churches around the country and making this book available uh, and asking for prayer and support for the persecuted Christians around the world. They've asked me, would I be their advocate and would I tell their story and so I've done that. And the book's available out, out in the four-year after the service for a gift of any amount. That's because my son told me, he said, Dad, don't charge people for your books. Nobody's going to buy your books. <laughs> I said, son, that's not a very nice thing to say. He said, no, really, Dad. He said, I saw your wide book on on Amazon for a quarter. He said, and it was autographed. How how embarrassing that is, Dad. He said, just give them away. Well, we're giving them away today for a gift of any amount, and 100% of the proceeds is going to go to the persecuted church. I don't receive a dime, and uh, we're... sending it to the persecuted church and so i'm i'm not above begging for the persecuted church so i'm begging you today to please please go back get a copy and be as generous as you possibly can we accept cash we accept check we accept credit card we got qr codes we whatever you got we got it <laughs> and uh I just, I just pray that you'll help us today. I, I remember the first Sunday of the book tour. I was nervous about, about this. I said, Lord, are you sure you want me to just do this? And, and after the service, I was sitting back at the table to sign books, and the first person that came through wrote a check and put it in the basket and I was signed it and when he walked away I looked and it was a check for $1,000. And I I have to believe since this is one of the most generous churches we partner with that if you'll just pray and ask God what he wants you to do I just have to believe we can make an impact For persecuted believers around the world. Let me read to you one page in the prologue that will explain the title. Um, Someone suggested, Vernon, you ought to give them their choice of purchasing your book or you reading it to them. He said, "I, I think you could raise more money that way. Let me read this to you. One page. I met Ping several years ago on a trip to Vietnam. Her story of persecution is the kind that haunts you for days and weeks later. In some respects, it still haunts me today. I will never forget the look on her face as she recounted the abuse and torture she had endured for being a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. This 34-year-old woman had once been a Buddhist and lived in a monastery. She had been sick for many years. And when Ping accepted Christ, she was immediately healed from her disease. She is now an evangelist and church planter. And when I met her, she had started six churches and had 47 new churches developing. This young woman had been arrested six times by the secret police. She suffers continuous persecution. She was beaten numerous times, detained for weeks at a time, and fined the equivalent of $250, which is six months' salary. The police beat her on the head every day for two weeks until she almost died. When she survived, they decided to tie her hands Together and throw her overboard from the boat into the, to the river. Once again, she miraculously survived. The police then forced her to march up and down a mountain for days. She said when she could no longer stand the beatings, she would pray and ask God for strength. One day, the police publicly humiliated her by tearing off her shirt and parading her through the streets. And she stood in that public gathering half naked with her hands tied behind her back and said, I live for Jesus Christ. If I die, I die for Jesus Christ. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 and verse 3 says these words, Remember those in prison as if you were there yourself. Remember also those being mistreated as if you felt their pain in your own bodies. I'm gonna ask us to try and put ourselves in the place of these persecuted believers and do what they author of Hebrews has asked us to do, to remember them as if we were there ourselves, and remember their treatment as if we were being mistreated ourselves. I was in Poland also last week and spent a day in Auschwitz One million Jews were killed at Auschwitz and cremated. And there was a sign that said, "Never again. never again." Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor wrote these words in 1937 when he said, "When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die." And how could he have known that he himself would be hanged in a Nazi concentration camp? His only crime was he was a Christian. The persecution of Christians around the world is more severe right now today than it's ever been in history. Mainly because of communism, the 20th century saw more martyrs than the previous 19 centuries combined, if you can believe that. In Sudan, Christians are enslaved. In Iran, they're assassinated. In China, they're beaten to death. In more than 60 countries worldwide, Christians are harassed, abused, arrested, tortured, even executed, specifically because of their faith. It's estimated Of course, we don't know the exact number, but it's estimated that every five minutes a Christian is killed for their faith. That's an average of 105,000 believers are killed each year for simply being a Christian. And that means in the past 10 years, we've seen one million martyrs. And I'm here to say to us this morning, A million martyrs is more than enough. These are not wild rumors, nor are they simply Christians who suffer from war or tyranny. But hundreds of millions of Christians are suffering simply because of what they believe. The reason your church is training church planters in Thailand instead of China is that it will cost those pastors their life if they're caught having church planting training in China. In many ways, Jesus was a martyr. He left his home and glory, came to this earth, and died willingly for his beliefs. Stephen considered the first Martyr of the church was stoned to death. James was beheaded. Philip was scourged and crucified. Matthew was slain with an ax. James the less had his brains beaten out. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Mark was dragged in pieces. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was crucified. Thomas was thrust through with a spear. Luke was hanged in an olive tree. And Simon was crucified. All of the disciples except one, John the Beloved. He was the only disciple that escaped violent death. One authority writes, Christian persecution did not stop with the deaths of the apostles. It has continued throughout the centuries and grown dramatically in the past few decades. But make no mistake, Christian persecution is increasing, and in one way or another, it affects us all. My friend Mark Batterson, who pastors just a few blocks from the United States Capitol in Washington, In the introduction of his book, Play the Man, he tells the gripping story of the martyrdom of Polycarp, one of the early church fathers. And on February 23rd, AD 155, in Smyrna, Greece, he says, like Jesus entering Jerusalem, Polycarp was led into the city of Smyrna on a donkey. The Roman proconsul implored Polycarp to recant. He said, Swear by the genius of Caesar. And Polycarp held his tongue. He held his ground. And the proconsul prodded, saying, Swear and I will release thee. Revile the Christ. And Polycarp responded with those words that have lived down through the centuries when he said, 80 and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The die was cast. Polycarp was led to the center of the Colosseum where three times the proconsul Announced, Polycarp has professed himself to be a Christian, and the bloodthirsty crowd chanted for death by beast, but the proconsul opted for fire. And as his executioners seized his wrist and nailed him to the stake, Polycarp stopped him and said, He who gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me to do so without the help of your nails. And as the pyre was lit on fire, Polycarp prayed one last prayer. He said, I bless you because you have thought me worthy of this day and this hour to be numbered among your martyrs in the cup of your Christ. And soon the flames engulfed him. But strangely, they did not consume him. And like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him, Polycarp was fireproof. And instead of the stench of burning flesh, the scent of frankincense wafted throughout the Colosseum. Using a spear, the executioner stabbed Polycarp through the flames, and Polycarp bled out. But not before the 12th martyr of Smyrna had lived out John's exhortation, Be faithful even to the point of death. And Polycarp died fearlessly and faithfully. And the way he died forever changed the way those eyewitnesses lived. It seems that every day we hear another news story of a church that is attacked. A missionary who's held hostage a Christian who has been murdered for their faith. But why is it that so many American Christians seem not to care? One leader working with the persecuted church gives two reasons. For Christians' relative lack of interest in the plight of suffering sisters and brothers worldwide. Number one, He said, American Christians for the most part are not interested in anything that happens outside of the boundaries of the United States and in many cases, outside of the boundaries of their own little communities. And number two, American Christians have no experience of persecution are suffering for their faith that remotely resembles the experience of many of our overseas brothers and sisters and it's difficult to empathize and many, many American Christians refuse to believe what is reported because it is so far outside of their experience. I've seen the actual scars. I've met the actual Christians. I've heard the heartache and sorrow in their voices. I've seen the suffering in their eyes. It's an unforgettable picture that is etched on my heart and in my mind forever, and I hope that God never allows me to forget. And although we live in a world of disbelief and mistrust, We as Christians cannot afford to be skeptics about persecution. It's real, and it's happening all around us. I know it's not a pleasant topic. I'd much rather be speaking to you about some uplifting principle of the Scripture that would encourage us all. We should be on our knees every day, thanking God that it's not what we must endure daily. We should thank God that we don't have to watch our spouses, our sons and daughters suffer immense pain and anguish and possibly even death just for their faith. Today, in Ukraine, there are millions of women and children who will not see their father and husband on Father's Day. Think about that one. How are we as Christians to respond to a persecuted church? Does persecution really affect us What is our responsibility to the persecuted church? What can we learn from the persecuted church? How can we embrace the suffering church? Someone suggested that when trying to make sense of persecution and martyrdom, four key reasons are usually given. Number one, Persecution purifies the church. There are no non- nominal believers in the persecuted church. There are no Sunday morning attenders in the persecuted church. There are no casual Christians in the persecuted church. It's life or death. Persecution unifies the church. There are no disputes over minor doctrinal issues in the persecuted church. They don't argue about which version of the scriptures to use. They're grateful just to hold a Bible, let alone to own one. There are no struggles for power in the persecuted church. Number three, persecution strengthens the church. Believers in the persecuted church are courageous and bold because every day they are compelled to take a stand for Jesus Christ. When he was alive, my friend Samuel Lamb, one of the leaders of the Chinese house church movement, told me, Vernon, please do not pray for the persecution to stop. I said, why? He said, the more persecution, the more people come to Christ. Number four, persecution grows the church. In 1950 when communism took over in China and missionaries were expelled, there were only 1 million Christians in the entire country. Today the government recognizes that there are at least 44 million Christians in China and some estimate that it could be as high as 130 million believers, and the reason we don't know for sure is because so many of them are meeting secret Secretly in house churches. Consider North Korea. Tom and I will never forget our first day there. As we drove over the Tumen River, our guide told us how North Koreans come to the riverbank and wait until evening to attempt the risky swim to mainland China. The border guards have orders to shoot on sight. And anyone attempting to cross the border illegally is subject to execution. Our guide then added, almost as an afterthought, the Tumen River has probably witnessed more deaths than any other river in the world. Nowhere is persecution more severe than North Korea. I'm not even able to share with you many of the atrocities committed against these believers, especially the stories of how hundreds of Christ followers are executed every year. In one instance, when a group of church leaders would not reject Christ, the police directed that a bulldozer be driven over them, crushing them to death. A government... Is rounding up entire families up to three generations and throwing them into labor camps. A believer can be sentenced up to 15 years in a labor camp just for owning a Bible or singing a hymn or praying, all three of which we've done this morning. And it's estimated that more than 25% of all the believers in North Korea are in a prison labor camp. And since most of the Christians die within three years, it's not a 15-year sentence. It's a life sentence, a death sentence. And so many of the Christians that go into those labor camps never come out. They're starved. They're beaten. They're tortured. Young boys are mutilated and dismembered. Young girls are systematically raped. Can you imagine For 20 consecutive years, North Korea has been ranked the most oppressive place in the world for Christians. And though exact numbers are difficult to confirm, it's estimated that there are 300,000 Christians in North Korea. And 70,000 are believed to be held in political labor camps, which means 25% of all the Christians in that country Are in prison. I don't pretend to understand even a fraction of what these people are going through, but I know if I were in their shoes, I would want to know that someone somewhere cared about me. North Korea needs Bibles, they need more churches, they need training. And I believe God is challenging you and me today to respond to believers like the ones in North Korea. It's long past time for feeling shocked or even sorry for Christians. It's time to act. Christians all across the world must come to the aid of those who are suffering persecution because of their religious belief. My late friend Luis Palau said, how many more Christians will have to suffer and die before we realize that it is our job to try to stop these atrocities. We are often so caught up with our own petty problems that we don't make time to think about the Christians that are bleeding and dying across the world. He said, there's so much that needs to be done. They need to have training to plant churches. In India alone, there are 500,000 villages without a church of any kind. They need to have buildings in which to meet. The Hindus in Asia say, if your God is so great, why don't you have a place to worship him? They need more Bibles. Millions of Christians around the world have never even seen a Bible. They need prayer because nothing of eternal significance is ever accomplished apart from prayer. And they need us to follow their example. Because the persecuted church doesn't understand our lifestyle. The persecuted church does not understand our materialism and selfishness and prayerlessness. It's a mystery to them how they can have so very little and love God so very much. And they look at us and it appears to them that we have so very much and compared to them love God so very little. And I say to you this morning, if the believers in North Korea, India, and China, and Vietnam, and all around the world are willing to die for Jesus Christ, surely we should be willing to live for Jesus Christ. In 1 John 3.17, in the message translation, we read these words that are so timely for us today. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. And in the words of the famous British abolitionist that brought an end to slavery in Great Britain long before America, the famous British abolitionist William Wilberforce made this statement that I think we can apply to the persecuted believers. You can choose to look the other way but you can never again say that you did not know. I want my grandchildren, I want to be able to say to them, when they ask me, Poppy, what did you do to help Persecuted believers around the world. I want to be able to say, I did everything I possibly could. I ask you, I ask you to please, I beg you, please help them today. Let's pray. I want to ask Tom to come and lead us in prayer for the persecuted church.
1: As we close our eyes and we finish this service in prayer, would you take just a moment and place yourself in one of those countries that Vernon talked about today? Maybe China, India, North Korea, Cuba. And you're there and you don't have the opportunity to come as we've done today and worship and pray and sing and open our Bibles. And then they look at us and say, remember us. So Father, today, all across this world, our men and women and boys and girls who desperately need to know that we love them, we care for them, and we are praying for them. That we're doing something about their plight That we know you understand and that you know and that you care and that you grieve over the situation and that you're giving grace for them as they go through it, but they need to know they are not alone. So today, in Iraq and Iran, in so many places where they're unable to worship you freely, we pray for them. Where they're suffering, we pray for them. Where they're hungry, we pray for them. Where they're lonely, we pray for them. And they wonder in the darkest hour, does anybody care? We pray for them. We ask that you lift them by your grace and strength and mercy. And today we know there will be some who will die and spend eternity with you, and they're grateful for that. And we understand in the moments that we're here, somewhere around the world that's happening. And we pray for us in America. We pray for us and our freedoms to not take it for granted and to understand that we too someday may possibly, more than ever before, understand what they go through. And may we be ready. We love you today. In Jesus' name. Amen.